Hello and welcome to the final episode of the first series of Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Bagini, but I'm going to hand over straight away to the chair of our annual debate, Rita Lashar from the BBC. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Institute of Philosophy's annual debate. I'm Rita Lashar and tonight we're going to be asking if science has killed philosophy. Now, this is the point where I should say I'm delighted to be here. Actually, I'm terrified. Let's face it, we are advancing to the edge of thought, teetering on the brink of understanding and basically holding a tug of war. Philosophy versus science. With a big showing from physics tonight, it has to be said, it's compelling, exciting and a bit scary too. So strap on your safety harness. We are going for a big and exciting ride. It was Stephen Hawking who proclaimed that philosophy is dead. It was designed, of course, as a statement to grab attention. But the statement also assumes that science can and will answer almost all the important questions that are floating about out there eventually. So when it comes to understanding the fundamental nature of reality, has philosophy really got anything left to contribute? Does the rise of physics demand the end of metaphysics? Or as physics advances, will metaphysics really actually sort of be its trusty companion? Let's meet our panel who are going to help us to power through this debate. Carlo Rovelli is a theoretical physicist who's made significant contributions to the physics of space and time. He holds the Distinguished Visiting Research Chair at the Perimeter Institute in Ontario, Canada. His books, which are international bestsellers, include The Order of Time and Helgoland, and they've been translated into 52 languages. Hello, Carlo. Hello to everybody. Let's meet our next panellist. Eleanor Knox is a reader in philosophy of physics at King's College London. Much of her work focuses on the foundations of space-time physics. She has an active interest in public engagement and was a scientific advisor on the BBC PBS documentary Inside Einstein's Mind, The Enigma of Space and Time. Hello, Eleanor. Hi, lovely to be here. Good stuff. And let's meet our third panellist. Alex Rosenberg is the R. Taylor Cole Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Duke University. His most recent book is How History Gets Things Wrong, The Neuroscience of Our Addiction to Stories. And his book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, Enjoying Life Without Illusions, is a robust defence of scientism. The idea that the methods of science are the only reliable ways to secure knowledge of anything. Hello, Alex. Hi from across the pond. Well, welcome very much to all of you. And I should add that, unfortunately, although we were due to be joined uh, by Chiara Marietta, she has had to withdraw for family reasons. It's a bit of a shame. So without further ado, let's hear from the first of our speakers. Let's begin with theoretical physicist Carlo Rivelli. Hello. um, Thank you. I am a theoretical physicist. Uh, And I'm convinced that, uh, contrary to what several of my colleagues think, philosophy plays a very important role in the development of science, uh, all sciences, but uh, um, physics in uh, particular, and fundamental physics in particular. In fact, I'm going to argue uh, something even a bit stronger than that, namely that uh, a certain recent uh, uh, sterility in fundamental physics, uh, which I believe is there, might be due also to an excessive anti-philosophical attitude of a good portion of the research community in which I belong. And I have three arguments for that. 
But before going into the, the three arguments, let me quote a couple of my colleagues just to clarify that I'm not uh, going into a straw man here. And uh, one is Steven uh, Weinberg, Nobel Prize, certainly one of the best theoretical uh, physicists uh, of the second half of the last century. He's uh, a main architect of the uh, standard model of particle physics, and he has written a book in which uh, uh, there is a chapter whose title is Against Philosophy. And he argues that uh, philosophical ideas uh, um, sometimes are prejudices that block the advancement of science, and therefore philosophy is more damaging than useful in science. And to be sure, I agree that sometimes philosophical ideas represent prejudices that block the advancement of science, but I much disagree that because of that, philosophy is more damaging than useful uh, in, uh, in science. And the second example is Stephen Hawking, which doesn't need to be uh, introduced in this uh, country. He's perhaps not at the level of Stephen Weinberg, but certainly one of the best physicists of his generation, and he famously has written the beginning of a book of him with a lot of success that philosophy is dead. Why? Because uh, questions that were philosophical in the past are now scientific questions. And again, to be sure, I do agree that some questions that uh, uh, used to be philosophical only in the past now have become uh, purely scientific questions, but I much disagree that because of that, uh, philosophy is, is, is dead. Uh, some questions I posed in the past are not my questions anymore, but I'm not dead for that. Now, these are examples of scientists that represent well a, a widespread, uh, certainly not universal, but widespread way of thinking among uh, scientists and in particular physicists. Now, let me be clear. Uh, I admire Stephen Weinberg and Stephen Hawking uh, enormously as scientists, a much better scientist than me, but I think they are deadly wrong about the uselessness or even the damaging effect of philosophy for science. And that's the idea which I'm going to defend. And second, since the other two of uh, my colleagues here are uh, philosophers and uh, not scientists, I'm not only a scientist, I am a uh, believer in scientism, in physicalism, in naturalism in, the, in its more restricted uh, sense. I think that, uh, for instance, uh, problems like uh, what does it mean to know, uh, what is the ground of knowledge, or uh, even what is the meaning of meaning, or what are the values that we hold and why, uh, or what do people mean by God, they're all problems that can be addressed uh, uh, scientifically. And yet, I think that science that chickens away from philosophy, from listening to philosophy, um, becomes sterile. All right, so this is the, the setting, now my three arguments. First is history. It is uh, very simple. Uh, Weinberg and Hawkins are good scientists, of course, but uh, uh, Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, Isaac Newton, Galileo Galilei, Charles Darwin, and so on and so on, are much greater scientists, uh, and so many other. And all these people have uh, achieved, uh, which are clearly and obviously profoundly influenced by the philosophy of their time. These were all great scientists that were uh, very keen in, in listening to the philosophy of their time, and it's obvious how the philosophical uh, reflections, um, idea of their time, had an immense influence in their work. Uh, I don't have time to go into, in, into them, of course, but let me just mention Albert Einstein, which is a quintessential scientist, who read the three critics uh, by Kant uh, before he was 16, that read all of Hume, notorious, he had Schopenhauer on next to his bed 
all through his life, uh, and was very open in recognizing the influence that philosophical uh, texts by Ernst Mach, for instance, uh, had in his main theories. Why? Because uh, philosophy, by uh, sharpening uh, reason, by criticizing assuming hypotheses, by debating the methodology of science itself, and especially offering a variety of widely alternative perspectives on reality, in philosophy has always influenced science, which is precisely the opposite of Weinberg blames philosophy for. Second point, and this is subtle, and I think is the most interesting one. Uh, When Weinberg and and Hawking write the equation of standard model of compute the heat of a black hole, they're doing science. But when they say that philosophy is useless, they're doing philosophy. And specifically, they're reflecting on their methodology of science. And this is good, because a good science, it should reflect on the methodology of science, of course. But the point is that they are doing it badly, because they don't recognize that what they are defending is not something away from philosophy. It's just a strongly influenced on one particular philosophy. Uh, in fact, their anti-philosophical attitude is an echo on the, the anti-metaphysical attitude of the Vienna Circle, Carnap and friends, colored by what has become in physics, in fundamental physics, the sort of methodological cradle in the, in the last decades, which is a mixture of Popper and Kuhn, mistaken for a sort of universal logic of uh, uh, science, instead of being a very particular take uh, which captures some aspect of a scientific enterprise, but certainly not, uh, not all of them. And in particular, it overemphasizes discontinuity and it overemphasizes the idea that anything that hasn't been falsified, it's possible as good as it's interesting. And this is where the sterility of modern contemporary fundamental physics, I think, is grounded. A lot of modern uh, fundamental physics is not really capable of doing what good science does, which is to build on the past, but producing new conceptual structure. This is what science is at its uh, best, recognizing mistakes in its own way of thinking. And instead, uh, it's trapped into a single conceptual structure and keep producing you know, a new equation, new Lagrangian, new Hamiltonians, uh, trying this and that because everything is possible, because what Brinkwood said so, and the past, the future should be completely disconnected from the past. Now, third, And last point, I want to temper, qualify my claim. Of course, there's science that does not need philosophy, okay? If you have to solve an equation, um, going to talk to philosophers is not a good advice. So far from me from claiming that there isn't a good science done uh, without direct influence from philosophy. A lot of good science relies on a concept, a concept, a structure that was developed by the, the father, the founding fathers, I don't know, father of quantum mechanics or general relativity or classical mechanics, thermodynamics, whatever, in the, in, the, in, in the context of physics. And those fathers were influenced by philosophy, but not when you're actually using um, this concept, a structure, uh, uh, effectively. So when is it that philosophy it becomes crucial when you have to go back to foundations, of course, when you have to rethink, because this is, I think, the core of what science is. It's a con- constant rethinking the basis, not giving the basis for granted, including the methodological 
understanding of what what one is uh, is doing and being able to change from from the basics and that why where the uh, the deepness the flexibility and the critical and the clarity of philosophical thinking becomes extremely useful and today we are in fundamental physics exactly in that situation um, we are back to the basis. We don't know what is space, what is time. Uh, Eleanor work on that. We are confused about fundamentals, uh, and we have to rethink. And that's where philosophical thinking comes useful. Not just in science. In uh, in neurosciences, uh, uh, the same. If we want to understand what is mean to understand um, what the brain is, is doing, necessarily we get trapped into philosophical questions where philosophical thinking is useful. Thank you, Carlo. Plenty to get stuck into there. But before we can cross examine you. We have to hear from our other panellists. Let's turn to philosopher of physics, Eleanor Knox, on tonight's question. So has science killed philosophy? I'm a philosopher, so it's not going to surprise you to hear that I don't think it has. But look, that's a very broad question. Science and philosophy are very broad disciplines. So I'll focus here on a narrower question concerning two of their sub-disciplines, physics and metaphysics. Metaphysics is, of course, the branch of physics that thinks about what things there are and the nature of those things. Now, I'm also a philosopher of physics, so it won't come as a surprise that I don't think physics has killed metaphysics. But I think the relation between physics and metaphysics is complex and informative. And I'd like to look a lot more at it here. I think ultimately what we're going to see is that the kind of metaphysics that we can do off the back of physics is very like the metaphysics uh, that in a sense we've always done. There's a continuation here, and I don't think there's any argument uh, for the death of metaphysics. So... One obvious place, if I were to start talking about this stuff, to look would be quantum mechanics. It's a huge source of disagreements about possibility for metaphysics, what the metaphysics of physics should be. But I've only got a few minutes. So I want to slightly set those problems aside. Doubtless we'll end up coming back to some of them in the chat. Um, Although the example I'll use will ultimately be one that's quantum. It's quantum nature won't matter too much. What I want to do here is point out that there really is a modern physics-informed way to do metaphysics, which is very much the continuation of traditional metaphysics. So let's think back 300 years to the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Kant was deeply interested, amongst many other things, in the phenomenon of handedness or chirality. That is the existence of certain shapes, which despite bearing all the same internal relations, cannot be rotated and translated onto one another. So there's a wonderful example of this right in front of you, in front of you and in front of me. You're right in your left hands. If you look at your hands to a reasonable approximation, all of the relationships between the parts are exactly the same. If you look at a hand internally and just spell out its properties and relations, it's impossible to tell whether you're talking about a right hand or a left hand. But nonetheless, of course, we know they're different. No number of translations or rotations of my right hand can lay it on to my left hand. You can't make a left shoe fit a right foot, no matter how hard you try. Um, My toddler tries very hard. So Kant was very puzzled about how he could understand the differences between these hands, given their identical internal relations. If you just thought about the hands in themselves, you couldn't understand why right and left were different. And what he did with this puzzle is he used it to draw metaphysical conclusions. At one point, he thought that the best explanation, the thing that could ground the difference between my right hand and my left hand, was the existence of absolute space. Later, he in fact thought that it was an argument for the ideality of space. But 
What I want to look at here isn't exactly what Kant's argument was. It's the methodology and the style of argument, which is actually a very traditional one in metaphysics. We observe a general empirical observable fact, often, not always, concerning, say, symmetries or the lack of them. There's a mirror symmetry between my hands, but a lack of a translational and rotational symmetry between what we call the incongruent counterparts. Um, you then ask what the world needs to be like for that fact to be the case. How could it be that left and right hands are different? Perhaps you think it's something about their relations to each other in space, or perhaps you think it's something about space itself. And you postulate a metaphysical hypothesis to explain that observed empirical fact. Okay, now let's come back to contemporary physics. Our hands were at least roughly a case of mirror symmetry. But our world isn't generally mirror symmetric. Um, our bodies aren't mirror symmetric in general. Our hearts tend to be on the left. Our brain hemispheres differ, etc., etc. Most of those asymmetries could, however, be explained by the internal relations of things. The relation between you know, the left hemisphere of my brain and the right side of my body is a fairly straightforward one. You might think that things would be very different when it came to fundamental physics. If I send a physics experiment way off into empty space, how would it know the difference between left and right? Surely, you ought not to be able to tell. But that turns out not to be the case. So it turns out that the weak interactions of the standard model violate what physicists call parity conservation. That is, they don't look the same under mirror symmetry. So if you look at what's called the Wu experiment, to simplify things a bit, what this does is stick a cobalt-60 nucleus inside an electromagnet, which coils in a particular direction. And you see electrons come out of this cobalt-60 nucleus in a preferred direction when you do this experiment. They don't come out evenly on both sides. But really importantly, if you take the mirror image of this experiment, the experiment doesn't reflect the actual mirror image of what happens. So rather than coming out going up, the electrons will come out going down if you mirror image the experiment. You don't get mirror symmetry. That's because the experiment cares about the handedness. It cares about whether the solenoid is coiling clockwise or anti-clockwise around the cobalt-60 nucleus. Now, this is something that physics very successfully predicts for us. And that prediction turns out to be true in experiments. But what physics by itself doesn't seem to tell us is how on earth these experiments know the difference between right and left. If I took one of these experiments way out, miles away from anything, how can it tell which, which kind of experiment it is, the right-hand one or the left-hand one? After all, the in, just like our hands, the internal relations are just the same in the two mirror images. So you might puzzle about this. You might think, well, maybe I need a bit of extra space-time structure to explain this. People would posit an orientation field. Or you might say, oh, there's some kind of action as to distance. These experiments can tell if they're right or left-handed by their relation to other things in the universe. But what I put it to you is whatever you take the answer to that question to be or the posit that you might make, what you're doing here is grappling with just exactly the same kind of metaphysics that, say, Kant grappled with, or indeed that, say, Newton and Leibniz did. So it's a very broad form of metaphysical methodology. And now it's inspired by sophisticated contemporary physics. Another less metaphysical response would be, oh, we need more physics. And of course, some of you might know a little bit about this thing and say, oh, well, isn't there another symmetry? I heard about something called charge parity time symmetry, which is conserved. 
in these kinds of situations. And that's right. But if you push the question back to there, you're back to the same kind of metaphysics. What does the symmetry tell us about which things we take seriously, what the metaphysics is? And on its own, the physics theories don't tell us that. So once you go to that kind of investigation, you're once again in very much the kind of metaphysics Kant was engaged in. Okay, so there is metaphysics in contemporary physics. But look, maybe that's not what, say, Stephen Hawking meant when he said that philosophy was dead. He didn't mean there's no metaphysics left. He meant it doesn't get done by philosophers. Um, he thinks that philosophers have lost touch with contemporary physics and that we're not thinking hard enough about the theories. That's very much the kind of context in which these kind of comments get made. So what should we say about that? Well, a bit of me sort of thinks, well, what am I and all my colleagues, chopped liver? We take ourselves, I'm a philosopher of physics. I take myself to think hard about physics theories. Um, but of course, that's a little bit flippant. Look, in one sense, it doesn't matter where philosophy gets done as long as it gets done well. Something like the metaphysics of physics, it's sometimes called foundations of physics when it's done in the theoretical physics department, and it's called philosophy of physics when it's done in the philosophy department. And many of the great philosophers of physics of the last hundred years have been physicists. I think John Bell, for example, was one of the best philosophers of physics of the 20th century, and he didn't call himself a philosopher. Carlo is another example of a theoretical physicist who takes philosophy really seriously and knows something about it. But we shouldn't assume that that means all or most physicists are of that ilk, or that ordinary theoretical physics does the kind of interpretational work that we're talking about here with much attention and care. If you want to take a careful and rigorous approach um, to paradoxes and puzzles, philosophical training is often going to be very helpful. And look, just as there are some philosophers who do metaphysics without understanding the ways in which physics might be relevant, there are many physicists who think about philosophical questions without understanding that these have a philosophical history. It's very important in any intellectual endeavor to avoid reinventing the wheel. And study of philosophy can sometimes help you avoid that. So in conclusion, rumors of the death of metaphysics, let alone of philosophy more generally, have been greatly exaggerated. There is a physics-informed metaphysics, which is a continuation and sophistication of the metaphysics we've been doing for hundreds of years. And it doesn't much matter what department it's done in, but it is often done in philosophy departments. And it always benefits from philosophical knowledge and thinking, as well as deep knowledge of the physics. Thank you, Eleanor. Well, I think the weight is behind uh, philosophy right now, still, still seems very much alive. But I think our last speaker, who is also a philosopher, may give us pause for thought. Alex Rosenberg, over to you. Well, thanks for the invitation. And since I've got a limited amount of time, I'm going to rush through my points, which will be perhaps at variance with some of the other things we've heard today. Has science, in particular physics, killed philosophy? Well, not yet, and maybe never, but that's an only maybe from me, uh, unlike probably a number of other uh, of our speakers. So before we begin, what exactly is philosophy? Uh, I've got a rather tendentious definition, an argumentative one, um, which drives my answer to our basic question. And that definition is that philosophy consists in two sets of questions. The questions that the sciences cannot answer ever, not just not yet, but ever, and the questions about why the sciences can't answer the first set of questions. Um, that's a fairly large budget of questions, and I think it's vindicated by the history of science. 
Each of the sciences, starting with mathematics, which is technically not a science, but for our purposes might as well be, each of the sciences has separated itself from philosophy sometime in the course of the last 2,300 years. And in doing so, each of them has left questions that they can't yet address or can't ever address. And in a couple of cases, of course, science has managed to take questions that we thought were philosophical and couldn't answer and begin to answer them. So mathematics is my first example. Mathematics separates itself from philosophy in the time of Plato and Aristotle, and particularly the figures of importance here are Euclid and Archimedes, who together created mathematics, in particular geometry and algebra. Um, but the interesting thing is that 2,500 years later, in spite of all the great advances lavished on mathematics by a sequence of geniuses transcendent in their intelligence, we still don't know what a number is. Now, of course, you might say that that's not a question that mathematics needs to answer, but it seems to be a real question and a question that only seems to be addressed anymore by philosophy. Take physics. Physics is a, an even more powerful example. Uh, physics becomes a separate science from philosophy in the 17th century in the work of Galileo and Kepler and Descartes, Newton, Leibniz. But now think about it. Newton's second law, F equals ma, force is equal to mass times acceleration. What is acceleration? Well, it's the first derivative of velocity with respect to time. Uh, that little t in the equation a equals dv dt. Uh, what does the t stand for? That's not the question, what time is it? It's the question, what is time? Okay, and physics, interestingly enough, has not yet answered that question, what time is. It's a question that philosophers have been struggling with, certainly since Aristotle, um, and uh, which physicists seem to be tempted, or at least to feel the responsibility to try to answer, but they have never yet been able to answer it. We know a lot more now since Boltzmann about the direction of time, but that's a different question from the question of what time is. This seems to be a question which, which has been left pretty much by physics to philosophy. There are a lot of other such questions. Uh, the Schrodinger wave equation, which is the most fundamental law governing uh, the reality as we understand it, um, is predictively powerful to 16 decimal places, but there's a, f a symbol in it for which we have no interpretation, at least none in physics, and about which physicists and philosophers continue to argue to this day, and that's the psi function. What exactly is a probability amplitude? The statement by Richard Feynman that in answer to the question, the best response that physics can make is shut up and calculate. That's just not an answer that we're going to be satisfied with in philosophy. Um, and physics, at any rate, still has no answer to the question. There are lots of other such questions, questions about the probability, the objective chances that emerge in Boltzmann's second law of thermodynamics, um, uh, or for that matter, questions about whether quantum mechanics or general relativity is the most fundamental theory uh, or not, or whether string theory is science. These are all questions, I think, that are still left to philosophy. Um, Biology, of course, has made a lot of philosophy uh, obsolete. Darwin only creates biology in 1859, and in doing so, suddenly takes away a lot of questions that we used to think were philosophical and turns them into interesting empirical 
problems. And of course, the, the impact of his book, The Descent of Man, and the application of natural selection to human institutions and their adaptation and to human function and purpose has seemed to answer a lot of questions that we thought were perennially philosophical. And in that respect, science has put an end, in my opinion, to a large chunk uh, of uh, contemporary philosophy. So the metaphysical question, what is the nature of reality? The epistemological question, how do we go about acquiring our knowledge about the nature of reality? I think these are the two broad questions that science really has now answered. The answer to the metaphysical question is, well, it's fermions and bosons. That's what reality consists in, um, along with all and only what can be composed out of fermions and bosons. That's a very radical reductionistic answer, but I think it's the answer that science gives us about the enduring questions of metaphysics, and it's the most well-grounded answer that we have at the moment. As for epistemology, well, the success of science and its application, technological and otherwise, shows that the experimental method is the royal route to knowledge. In fact, the only route to knowledge. Um, and between them, these two answers imply a whole lot more. Um, they imply that the physical facts fix all the facts, the chemical, the biological, the psychological, the social and the cultural facts too, and that the answers to all of our factual questions need to be grounded sooner or later in physics. Those are two radical claims, and if they're right, of course, they do put an end to a good deal of what um, philosophy has speculated about over the last 2,000 years. Does that mean that philosophy has nothing to contribute to metaphysics and epistemology? Well, if we go back to my original definition of philosophy as addressing these two kinds of questions, uh, the questions that science can yet not yet answer and the questions about why they can't yet answer them, well, science has answered a lot of the questions that, that philosophy has posed since its inception. And the question that remains is, will there be any unanswered questions at the end of inquiry? possibilities. So one is yes. Um, any questions that it appears to leave unanswered will turn out to be pseudo-questions. You know, questions like, do colorless green ideas sleep furiously? Or have you stopped beating your wife? Answer yes or no. Or else, alternatively, no, there will be some real questions, some important ones that will be left at the end of inquiry. And if there are such questions, then of course, science will not have successfully killed off philosophy. Now, my own opinion is a rather radical one. I think that at the end of inquiry, all the real questions will have been answered and answered by science, and there won't be any questions remaining. Uh, anything that looks like it's an unanswered question will, in my opinion, turn out to be a pseudo-question. So the problem with my position, however, is that we're not yet at the end of inquiry. And when we get there, we won't be certain that we are at the end of inquiry. There's no way to tell when science has finished. There's no way to tell when the basic brute, what we think of as the brute level unexplained explainers, are the brute level and whether there's something deeper that explains them. And so the only way that I can actually argue for the claim that science will leave no question unanswered and that science will eliminate all philosophy, the only way I can answer that question is by doing some philosophy. And in that respect, at least for the moment, it seems to me that science has left some space for our discipline. 
Alex, thank you very much. So we've pulled our rope in both directions. Let's take a closer look at some of the issues that uh, we've heard talked about. Now, I'm going to kick off and I want to really begin by asking quite a basic question that Alex actually has touched upon in quite a lot of detail. So, Carlo, I'm going to begin with you. Do you agree, first of all, that philosophy is concerned with the questions that science can't answer? And if that's the case, is it possible to say what those questions are and how many of them are remaining? Well, this is one of the questions that is, I'm not, I'm not sure how well posed it is, for the following reason. And I mean it this way. It's a funny situation because I'm the scientist here and Alex is a philosopher, but we are in a sense defending each other departments in what we say. I'm saying that philosophy is more useful and necessary than what many things. And Alex is saying, no, it's less, uh, uh, it's less. in fact, it's, it's going to become less and less uh, um, useful to the point that it should, uh, um, should disappear once we have uh, answered all the questions. Now, I, I don't think that that's the way things work. It's not that there are open questions and then we close one by one. I don't see science this way. I mean, maybe maybe Alex is a, has a much longer view of me, is much more optimistic. But for me, the, the world is full of immense amount of mysteries, things we don't understand at all levels. I'm a physicalist. I do agree that every system is a physical system, uh, but I would disagree, for example, saying, okay, now we've figured out everything is bosons and fermions. No, I mean, I study black holes. Black holes is not bosons and fermions, it's something else part of which we haven't figured out yet. So we live in an open, in, in a world full of mysteries uh, where no doubt, uh, agree with Alex, that the best way we have to get knowledge uh, is science. But we're not even sure what science is. And I'm not sure I agree with him that, oh yeah, we know, it's just making experiments. Making experiments is an ingredient. It's a very great ingredient. It's like tool. But the point is not making experiments. The point is understanding through these experiments. So there's a part of science which is conceptual rethinking, theory, uh, changing idea, discovering that our own ideas are wrong. Um, when Einstein understood that simultaneity is easily defined, is a wrong way of thinking the world, that's not experiment. That built on experiments, of, of course, but was a remarkable conceptual discovery that he got to also because he read Kant, uh, the same Kant uh, um, that Eleanor was, was talking about, and Kant reflections about the nature of space. So to try to answer, uh, I, I don't think an issue is that we have, we have a set of questions, we close this, we close this, we close this, and then we, the remaining ones are answered by science, and, and, and the ones we, we can't are meaningless. It's much more complicated scientific enterprise itself. It's a constant rethinking immersed in a cultural dialogue in which uh, uh, philosophy has always played a role. And the same kind of discussions we are having now are part of that, uh, of that dialogue, uh, in, in my opinion. So I've, I, I guess I have a more complicated view of what science is, maybe a more simplistic view of what philosophy is. Alex, if I can bring you in, are you an optimist um, and someone who looks too far into the future? And there's actually a question from uh, the audience that I think feeds into this. Uh, Vincenzo Sorrentino says, well, isn't assuming that we'll ever reach the end of our quest for knowledge, both scientific and philosophical, by reaching the ultimate truth, wishful thinking, we have a limit. I think a lot of what Carlos said is uh... Um, very apt. And one of the things it made me think of was the fact that every time that we answer a question in science, uh, every time we push back the frontiers uh, 
of knowledge, we actually increase the number of questions that we've got to ask because our new knowledge has led us to a whole series of new questions about what we've just nailed down, whether in experiment or in theoretical reflection. Um, and I think my image is a very long-term image both backwards and forwards. That is, I think about the history of physics and the history of philosophy, and I see how questions that we thought of as purely philosophical turned out to be answerable by physics. And we also saw, in the case of a philosopher like Kant, a philosopher taking sides on the most fundamental matters of physics and then being completely overtaken by events. So Kant uh, began by thinking that uh, Newtonian mechanics had to be true, and not only did it have to be true, but it had to be necessarily true. Um, and so he wrote the Critique of Pure Reason in order to establish this claim. And it had to be necessarily true because it was the only way we could think we are somehow Newtonian in our cognitive structure. Well, it turned out he gave hostages to fortune because it, it turned out that not only was Newtonian mechanics not necessarily true, it wasn't even true. To that extent, contemporary physics has informed and post con and physics has informed uh, and undermined uh, the philosophical conception, the metaphysical conception of the world um, that he and his immediate followers embraced. I also agree with uh, your questioner that, uh, of course, the agenda of science is open and seems in at least many respects to be expanding. But does that mean that our fundamental picture of the nature of reality as it currently is most well grounded in physics is the one that we should endorse uh, if we have to endorse one or another? I think the answer to that question is yes. And of course, it's open to us, uh, as Carlo suggested, to continue to wonder whether the received view is even approximately right. And that, of course, is what generates new and important scientific breakthroughs. Eleanor, if I can bring you in, where do you see this discussion about the end of knowledge and the role of philosophy uh, in, in, in a sense, filling in the gaps, providing the groundwork? Where does it sit? So I think the biggest source of disagreement between me and Alex is, is that I sort of think he's being unfair to physics and philosophy simultaneously. Um, I don't like these demarcation criteria. I think that what, one of the things Alex wants to do is say, these are the philosophical questions and these are the physical questions. And in order to work out which are which, we need to wait until the end of inquiry. It's just not how I think about what we're doing. I think that the relatively continuous investigation into nature that people were doing when they called it natural philosophy is still what we're doing. We just do it in different departments now. And so I think of philosophy as training a methodology much more than a set of questions. Of course, there are some questions we recognise as very philosophical. But if you ask a question like, what is matter composed of? I don't think you're asking a simple physics question or a simply philosophical question. For the record, I think saying it's just composed of fermions and bosons is also doing physics a bit of an injustice and underestimating how complex an issue like that is. And I think that in order to answer a question like, what's matter made of? in the kind of deep philosophical sense we want to, you've got to bring both disciplines in and both skill sets in. So I think that, I mean, I have no idea whether one day we'll get a physics theory and just never get any further. Um, I suspect not. But I also don't think that's going to be the thing that tells us what the role for philosophy to play is. I think philosophy has always and continues to do very helpful work 
in the domain of scientific inquiry, but answering, helping answer some of the questions that aren't straightforwardly answered with purely uh, the skill set that's necessarily taught in particular philosophy and particular science departments. Eleanor, I'm, I'm going to stay with you and bring in a question from the audience. Uh, Fabio says, philosophy is the love of wisdom and science pursues knowledge. How should one distinguish between wisdom and knowledge? Look, I mean, I, I have colleagues who, who really believe in this distinction, but I think that, uh, I, I think of philosophy as pursuing knowledge as well. So, so I think my conception of philosophy, we might want to know what the morally right thing to do is sometimes. We might want to know what the scientific method is or whether there's such a thing. Those are distinctively philosophical questions. But I think ultimately most of the philosophical issues that I would think about would be knowledge-seeking as well. And, and wisdom is, is an attribute of people who are good at uh, at using or seeking knowledge in particular ways. Carlo or Alex, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yes. Um, I I'm with Eleanor in most respects. In fact, as a scientistic philosopher of whom there are very few, um, I'm inclined to hold with a much more radical uh, thesis, which is that there's knowledge uh, and then there's good luck. And wisdom is just uh, <laughs> what we refer to the, uh, as the the visions of people who turn out by accident to be right. <laughs> Carlo, would you agree with that? Uh, I've been listening very carefully to what Eleanor said about the, the vagueness of the distinction of the demarcation between philosophy and, uh, and science. And I think it's a, deep, uh, it's a deep idea, it's a deep thought in the sense uh, that when you look what actually people do when they do science, uh, and also what actually people do when they do philosophy, um, I'll come back to that. There, there is evidently a, a huge difference in, in the styles, in tools, in methods, uh, but uh, there's a lot of common ground. Uh, and if you try to do sh a sharp distinction, it's, it's, it's far from obvious. The text by Ernst Mach, which I don't know, there, or Poincaré, or Einstein himself, or, or Weinberg talking about philosophy is dead. Which, which, I don't know their philosophy of science. And the actual working... I mean, I, I, for doing quantum gravity, for trying to solve a simple problem, which is like what happened at the end of the life of black hole, which I'm working now, I'm asking questions about the nature of space and time. And, uh, and I'm reading a book by Reichenbach on, on that, and who's definitely a philosopher, not a scientist. And I think it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's relevant. Now, to understand when somebody talks, you have to, to think who is talking to or against. And uh, in most of what Alex says, I, I do agree if I put myself in his shoes and I take his stance uh, and I think against what he's debating. Obviously, Kant was wrong, right? Exactly in the, say, in the way that, uh, uh, that Alex has been describing, right? I mean, Newtonian physics, as he beautifully put it, uh, is not only a priori wrong, it's just wrong, period, in a very technical and precise sense. Does this show how useless was Kant for the history of thinking? I don't think so. Because uh, if so, it would show how useless was Newtonian physics for the history of thinking, which is wrong, okay? Like Kant's understanding of it. The use that Einstein made of Kant by not being seduced by him having a definitive word it's very similar to the use that Einstein made of Newton and Galileo, 
by, t- by not being seduced by uh, thinking that they have a definitive world. And nevertheless, using uh, some of their ideas, uh, like, you know, Galileo relativity, Einstein relativity is just Galileo relativity extended in a suitable way. In the same way, he, Einstein used uh, some insights that he got from Kant, for instance, the fact that some aspect uh, of, of what we call space and time, some aspect, not all of it, don't depend just of the, of the object of our knowledge, but also depend on the subject, which is a, definitely a, a deep insight that we have w- with us and uh, we keep using, which to some extent was grounded in Copernicus and, uh, and, and so on and so forth, in a back and forth between philosophical thinking and uh, uh, scientific thinking, which I think is still going on today. So in other words, I do agree that there is something wrong in so much of philosophy and in some contemporary philosophy that don't listen to science also, just to be, to be, to be clear and open. And I do agree that if you want to understand something, scientific method is something that we have. And if we don't use, like good part of contemporary philosophy, not paying attention to the scientific method, then we, we do something silly, we do something stupid, because uh, uh, scientific knowledge is, uh, I agree with Alex, is best way we have uh, to get convinced of, uh, uh, of something. But science is not so clear, and the methodology of science is not so clear, and uh, in this, the continuous debate, uh, back and forth between philosophical thinking and scientific thinking is still, I don't know, 2000 years in the future. But for the moment, where we haven't answered all the question, I think is the best we have. Uh, but Carlo, to stay with that, let's turn it around. You've been very constructive and, and shown that back and forth between philosophy and physics and, and how it has uh, moved both disciplines forward. But you've also, I think, accepted that some philosophical ideas are essentially a prejudices. I mean, are there examples where philosophy blocks the advance of science? Plenty, and plenty of scientific ideas were prejudices. I mean, Newtonianism has been a triumph of the human mind and a prejudice <laughs> that uh, for a long time has made difficult to understand relativity and quantum mechanics. And uh, I'm sure nowadays, today, we have prejudices, scientific prejudices, strong scientific prejudices and strong philosophical prejudices. There's a huge debate in quantum mechanics that have been mentioned, both by Alex and, uh, and Eleanor, uh, I, I believe that there is an excessive, uh, uh, strong version of realism, uh, which is a prejudice uh, which blocks us from understanding uh, quantum mechanics. Very similar to the excessive realism that made difficult to understand that the Maxwell equation meant that there is no simultaneity. It's exactly what Einstein understood. So, yeah, there are philosophical ideas that block us from going ahead. There are scientific ideas that block us from going ahead. There are good scientists who are capable of thinking uh, around these blocks, and there are remarkable philosophers that teach us how to go around this block. What the scientists find in philosophy, I think, uh, is a variety of perspectives, some of which, he says, come on, this is silly, I don't care about it. I mean, do I believe in Hegelian idealism? No, I don't. Do I, um, but then I, th- th- there is a variety of perspectives, there's a richness of perspective, and there is a capacity which I think is particularly useful to question not only the content of what we think, but the way which we think, right? Somehow, the key point is also methodology here. It's not clear what science is. 
I mean, philosophy of science, which is a crucial part of philosophy, keep telling us something different about what science is, and uh, uh, scientists better listen because everything is something more we understand about uh, what science is. Science is not what Carnap uh, and his friends thought. A hundred years have passed, and, and uh, we have learned it's much more complicated than that, and that's why it works, because it's more complicated than that. Eleanor, I'm going to come to you with a question from uh, the people out there who are watching and participating. Monty Kansen says, will science, particularly physics, ever be able to explain how consciousness arises out of fundamental reality? It seems very unlikely. Given this, it seems like both disciplines are needed. He seems quite taken by, I think, your argument. Um, good. So I think that I mean, consciousness science, which I mean, it's not my special area, but very interesting listening to neuroscientists talk about consciousness because one of the things that they might not be clear on is what questions they're asking when they're asking to explain how um, consciousness arises. And I think that what philosophers are at least good at is working out what kinds of questions we might be asking, how they might differ, and which ones might be subject to empirical inquiry and, and to ask the question whether there's anything left when we finished with that. Now, for my two cents, I'm enough of a physicalist that I think that we might reach the end of inquiry when it comes to consciousness. I think we might come to understand neuroscience well enough that, in fact, the feeling, if we have one, that there's a remaining question to be asked is an erroneous one. But I think that one needs philosophy to get to that stage, even if one is um, uh, fairly bullish on our capacity to understand consciousness because you need to understand that the remaining mystery that you might feel is there might be illusory, and that's a philosophical position. And likewise, I mean, if you want an alternative explanation of, con of consciousness, it might have to come from somewhere else. So I think it's a classic example. I think, I think questions about consciousness are a classic example of somewhere where philosophers do need to work with scientists because, I mean, these topics like free will, consciousness, if you're a philosopher and you listen to what happens when an average group of very smart scientists but who haven't thought about philosophy, start talking about them, you realise they haven't worked out what question they're trying to answer um, or define the things that they're talking about. Um, and they haven't worked out what the possibility space for answers looks like. And not to make philosophers just sound like distinction, definition givers and distinction drawers, but that's <laughs> another place that philosophical training methodology really helps, you know, stop. You know, what would a satisfactory answer to that question looks like? If for you, it looks like something that would never, ever be possible from empirical science, then the next question is, you know, is any kind of answer possible? Um, and uh, maybe for you that the answer is yes, there is a possible answer. But you need, but once you're in that domain, you're in a domain in which philosophical thinking is helpful. I think philosophical training and philosophical ways of answering questions are helpful. Alex, would you agree with that? Is this one of the questions that fits into that shrinking space that you identify for philosophy? Yes, I, I think that um, uh, questions about the relationship between uh, cognitive neuroscience, neuroscience, and cognitive psychology um, are ones in which philosophers are making the probably most important contributions right now by way of methodology and ground clearing of the conceptual framework within which we can intelligently advance the science um, of our uh, of ourselves, um, probably this, as I said, is the area where we're making the most contribution. But I want to get back to something that uh, Eleanor said, with which I'm in profound agreement. 
both of us, I think, despite our age differences, are students or students of students of a very important philosopher of the 20th century named uh, Willard Van Orman Quine. And it was Quine's insight that the relationships between conceptual and empirical were not matters of differences of kind, but differences of degree, of abstractness and generality. Um, and what we do in metaphysics and epistemology shades imperceptibly over into physics and methodology and statistical uh, scientific uh, uh, methods of inquiry. And that makes many of the questions that we identify as questions in the philosophy of science um, or philosophy of the special sciences, whether biology or psychology or physics, makes many of these questions into very abstract and general questions indistinguishable from the abstract and general questions of the sciences themselves. Um, and it's that background from which I come to this conclusion that at the end of inquiry, there won't be anything left for philosophy. But that doesn't mean that the questions that the physicists like Carl and philosophers like uh, Eleanor and I are addressing will disappear or become pseudo-questions. It means that we'll come as close as we can to answering them. So if I can come back to a question for our audience, Ian King asks, and I'll, I'll put this to you, Alex, I think first, science can establish facts, but how can it determine values and ethics? You can't find right and wrong from an experiment. So this is an insight that goes at least as far back as 1737 to the great Scottish philosopher David Hume uh, and has its echoes in 20th century philosopher, uh, Cambridge philosopher G.E. Moore, and which I have particularly taken to heart, which has resulted in my being naturally very skeptical about our ability to acquire moral knowledge. I don't think I want to say any more than that. Both Eleanor and I will excuse ourselves from doing substantive moral philosophy, um, but we might certainly have views about what's called meta-ethics, which is the question of the meaning and the, uh, the ground of moral claims. Uh, but we certainly don't think that experiments will ever answer the moral questions that impose themselves on our consciousness and that answers to which drive our choices. Eleanor, uh, do you agree with what I said? Yes, no, I think I, I think I do agree with that. I mean, I'm not sure that our values themselves come from philosophy. Um, so, although I'd, I'd love them to, but um, but I'm, I think philosophy maybe can ask the question of where on earth they do come from, um, and can also ask you questions about what might be consistent with your values and how to have a consistent value set and how to how to apply things. And those, yeah, those are not things that I mean. Of course, they're things scientists could ask about and could think about, but they don't look like empirical questions on the whole. And they look like things that uh, this philosophical methodology, again, is going to be the most helpful thing to deal with. Carlo. Both these two last questions were formulated in a way in which the two persons, uh, we should know who they are, who asked this question, sort of suggested like, look, there are some domains like uh, uh, values, ethics, or consciousness, the previous questions, that uh, um, as such uh, show that philosophy is needed because they escape the possibility of studying them empirically and, and, and getting clarity through science. All right. Here, I want to state my opinion as strong as I can. Here I am more you know, realist than the king or more, uh, I don't know, more leftist than Che Guevara. I disagree as strongly as possible, as strongly as I can. There is nothing in consciousness, in my opinion, there's no evidence whatsoever that there is anything in consciousness, in my opinion, or in ethics, or in values, 
that by itself escape the natural domain of the walls, uh, fermions and bosons, and their immense complexity that they create, including uh, biology, life, society, and so on and so forth, all the rest. And there is no reason whatsoever why we should not be able to study consciousness just as all the other phenomena. Uh, I think that all the arguments that people put forward to show that these things cannot be addressed scientifically are wrong. And I say wrong here, strongly wrong, in scientific sense, in philosophical sense, in all sense. Which doesn't mean that, therefore, uh, we should not uh, use philosophy to discuss this thing. The other way around. I think that uh, a good philosophical uh, position here is to recognize exactly this point, that these things could be studied, uh, can be studied also scientifically. I mean, it's a, I, I think the idea that consciousness by itself is sort of uh, pertain to a different realm that physical um, phenomena, the mental phenomena, physical phenomena are profoundly different, irreducible one to the other. It's just bullshit. And the same for values and ethics. I mean, I'm, I have value. I have. Uh, I, I. I. I believe in ethics. I believe in morality. I make value judgment. But I think I'm a natural beings that uh, do do these things as such. Uh, as a natural being, the, the same way in which I speak and talk and laugh and I'm happy, I'm sad and uh, and I wait and I'm a certain color and I do certain things. Among the things I do is to choose, have value and argue for these values. Now, I'm not saying that we should study ethics and value only in terms of the naturalist perspective on them. We can study them by themselves. We can do the philosophy of ethics. We can do moral books about morality based on axioms, like we can do thermodynamic without ever thinking that there are little molecules behind. Uh, of course, we can domains can be studied by themselves, but that doesn't mean that domains are isolated from one the others, and we cannot connect them, and we cannot look for an overall uh, picture uh, in which they stay together, and this picture includes the naturalism, in my opinion, in which values and ethics are uh, part of the same, exactly the same world in which there are electrons and protons, um, without any cut between them. That's my view on this, I think, which I don't think is uh, too far away from um, Alex and Eleanor. Is Alex, it? are you reassured? Well, this is where the philosopher uh, wants to draw distinctions, and of course, the naturalist and maybe we're all naturalists here, certainly Carlo and I, recognize that the only way we can understand either consciousness or moral norms is by subjecting them to empirical inquiry. Um, but that's a quite different matter from the question of whether we can decide on substantive moral questions by empirical means. And that's the claim that since Hume philosophers, or many philosophers at any rate, have uh, rejected out of hand. The, the actual decision is not a, an empirical thing. It's, it's a discussion you're having, you and I, on the basis of what we call morality. I'm going to make a handbrake turn and ask a, a completely sort of different question. And Carlo, this is really for you, and I'll bring the others in. But in a sense, is the arena for this discussion too narrow? We're having it in the context of Western philosophy. But in Helgoland, you refer to a book called Nagarjuna, uh, sorry, a man called Nagarjuna, I'm assuming it's a man, who was a Buddhist philosopher from the second century. And the central thesis was, and I'm quoting directly from your book here, is there's nothing that exists in itself independently from something else. And that for you is an important echo of quantum physics. So could our embrace of a, a wider philosophy actually be more useful or be 
augment this discussion about the relationship between physics and philosophy? Um, yes, when I think about philosophy, in fact, the more and more, the more I grow old and read, uh, I don't think only at the wonderfully rich Western philosophical tradition, but also at, at the Chinese philosophy. I mean, there's a book, uh, Swan Chi, which I find is a fantastic book, which I've been uh, immersed recently, and, and, and Indian philosophy. But it's not a recent discovery. I mean, uh, the Western philosophy was constantly influenced by a dialogue with the, with the East. I mean, Schopenhauer was, and there's a recent beautiful book about the the the, the relations between uh, uh, ancient Greek thinking and ancient Indian thinking through the Persian old Persian Empire uh, at the time. So the dialogue has been on going on uh, uh, back and forth. Uh, Nagarjuna, which I have a chapter of my book on quantum mechanics on him. Uh, uh, I found it extraordinarily interesting because uh, um, in the deep confusion in which we are about quantum theory, uh, physicists and philosophers, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a constant debate in many philosophy departments and physics departments of what, what, what actually we have we understood about the world with quantum theory, and, and there's no agreement today. I think that uh, uh, Nagarjuna, which obviously didn't know anything about quantum theory, I mean, lived long ago, uh, offers some conceptual tools which are very useful, uh, which are not totally absent from in, in Western philosophy, but are very clear, um, sharply presented by him of thinking more in terms of uh, rationality, and especially the idea of getting rid of the one wrong question, which is uh, uh, what's the ultimate substance, uh, what's the ground of everything, what's the foundation of everything which might be a wrong questions that we might recognize as wrong philosophically. As, uh, as Alex has said very uh, uh, beautifully, a lot of progress we make by recognizing that some questions are just bad questions. And uh, uh, what is the ultimate substance of everything might be one of these wrong questions. Well, Alex, let's stay with that idea of pseudo-questions. What are pseudo-questions? Just elaborate on that a little bit more for us. So here's a, a, a nice example. Consider the following hypothesis. The universe and everything in it just doubled in size. And of course, that means not just the galaxies in the Milky Way, but every subatomic particle, every fermion and boson. And of course, uh, all the measuring rods. Is there any way that we can tell whether that hasn't just happened? And of course, the answer to that question is, well, it's not a... a a real question because the measuring instruments that we would use to determine whether anything just doubled in size will themselves have doubled in size, and so it'll be undetectable. Or suppose we consider another equally silly question. The universe and everything in it uh, came into existence five minutes ago with all of the artifacts and all of the false, false memories um, that we have to make us believe that it is 13.7 billion years old. Those are two nice prove uh, the question. How can we prove those? The what the right answer to those questions is um, uh, are pseudo questions. Um, and of course, they're silly, laughable ones, but it might turn out that there are other questions that look to us like they're real that are equally pseudo-questions. So just sticking with this idea of, of the nature of questions, I think you've talked about factual questions um, uh, in a sense being the ones that, that science can answer, but then how do we think about something like history in that context? 
Well, there are factual questions about what happened in the past, right? And there are factual questions about what the causes of those events were in the past. And I assume that uh, if the answers to those questions are not available, it's simply because the the evidence is inadequate or insufficient or has been lost. Uh, but all of those are quite real questions. What is of interest to me as a philosopher, a particular philosopher of biology and philosopher of social science, is whether understanding the causes of the events of the past has any role to play in helping us uh, to prepare for, predict, or control events in the future? And that's a very deep philosophical question at the moment. Great. I'm going to go to a question from the audience. Carlo, this is for you. Uh, Mali66 says, are you saying ethics is just our emotional approval or disapproval of certain actions, i.e. the boo-hurrah theory? I think ethics is the complex phenomenon that happens in human societies, or perhaps even singles, but I would say more societies. It, it, it's a very real phenomenon in which we are uh, making choices, making rules on the basis of a very complex uh, set of reasons which are deep in our thinking, uh, which are uh, rooted in, in, in what we are, in the culture that we are, and cannot be just reduced to simply in approval or disapproval, much stronger. Just to go back to Carlos' thermodynamics analogy, I think there's a confusion that's really easy to fall into here, which is that just because you think that something like ethics might be a part of the natural world, you think it's some kind of instantly reducible, simple part of the natural world. I mean, we have biology and we have thermodynamics and we have all these wonderfully, incredibly complex parts of the natural world. And I think we probably are all naturalists here. And ultimately, I think that you know, stuff is made of physics stuff. But a lot of my work, and I think some of the most interesting scientific and philosophical questions around are exactly the questions about how the higher level stuff, all this interesting complexity, value, all the things human cares, humans care about, how that arises in a natural world and how those things relate. And that relationship is very rarely, it's going to be a very, very complex one. Uh, one that I think looking deeply at physics helps you to understand just how complex. You know, the way in which a table is made up of its particles is much more complicated than most people appreciate. And if that's true, then the way in which our moral structures are composed of people, societies, and let alone physics is going to be vastly complex. So... Reduction is a kind of funny phrase, but, but one can be, one can think things aren't external whilst thinking they have an enormous life of their own and huge complexity of their own. Alex, come on. These questions are always driven by the fact that we have to make choices. We have to make decisions to, we can't be neutral, particularly in our own lives. And so we philosophers and non-philosophers um, want to do the right thing. And we have this strong commitment to the notion that, that the right thing is going to be told us by the ethical truths, the moral truths. Uh, and so we keep demanding that someone, whether it be a theologian or a, a, a philosopher, point us in the direction of what those truths are. And they can't be merely matters of our emotion. And we philosophers have, you know, looked at this Certainly Kant, Hume, John Stuart Mill, John Rawls. Um, we've all looked 
and looked to these great philosophers to help us understand what the truth of the matter is, as opposed to what the psychological processes that lead us to make choices, often wrong choices, uh, are. And we have at least never yet been satisfied. Our dissatisfaction seems to me to reflect the fact that we misunderstand the nature of these questions. Uh, and maybe they're pseudo-questions. Uh, that doesn't mean that we cannot avoid making the moral choices that we're faced with and hoping that we get it right. Now, I'm conscious of the time. I'm going to get in a few more questions that we've had sent in. Um, Editor Armstrong Perlman asks, is the role of feelings in human action a philosophical or a scientific question? Alex, I think I'm going to come back to you for this. Oh, it's clearly a, a scientific question. The role of feelings in human action means what is it that drives our behavior? And the sort of standard off-the-shelf common sense theory is that it's our beliefs uh, harnessed together with our desires. And our desires are often effective and themselves reflect our emotions. So obviously, emotions are a large part of what drives our particular choices and our actions, if that theory is right. Now, is that theory right or wrong? Philosophers have no privileged position from which to say that's going to be purely a matter for the cognitive scientists and the, uh, and the cognitive neuroscientists. Eleanor, something that I've been wondering about is we, I know you've been keen not to get sort of too trapped in definitions, but if we're thinking about philosophers who contribute to science, so there are obvious people that we can point to, contemporary philosophers who are contributing to science now. So I think perhaps the best example of this is in the many worlds, the Everest interpretation of quantum mechanics. So not everyone loves it, but many physicists have found this, you know, helpful in their thinking and it allows them at least to use quantum mechanics in a realist way. Um, and it's somewhere there's been enormous progress in the last 30 years. There's a huge number of the extant problems that people thought um, accrued to just interpreting quantum mechanics on the face of things without adding any physics or perhaps, as Carla would prefer, adding any philosophical perspective. Funny if that, that progress is made by philosophers. So working out how you can think about uh, quantum mechanics as a probabilistic theory without kind of inserting probabilities from somewhere thinking about how decoherence theory relates to quantum mechanics. And so, I mean, this is where my training will show. There's a group of philosophers largely based at Oxford, perhaps David Wallace in particular, made huge progress in this. And I think it's had a big influence on a big set of contemporary physicists. I think there was a vote for you, Eleanor, from Carlo, or was it from Alex? Alex, I'll bring you in. So um, I think uh, the, the biology is the one discipline that has been most welcoming, uh, most accepting and most receptive to uh, the work of uh, philosophers. Um, I can think in particular of, a, of a, an Oxford philosopher, someone who probably went to graduate school with Eleanor, Samir Okasha, who has spent much of his career trying to help us understand the nature of the questions about the levels of selection. And by and large, philosophers that I listen to tell me that if anyone has settled these questions, it's Okasha, um, who teaches at Bristol and who is always listened to when he's got things to say to biologists. Carlo, turn that question on its head then. Uh, an example of a scientist doing great philosophy. Oh, I was trying to collect my mind about philosophers who do. <laughs> uh, uh, you mean contemporary scientists or, or, mm. or just the previous generations? I, I think someone fairly contemporary. 
Well, for instance, there's a big uh, discussion about the nature of time in which a number of scientists, uh, uh, physicists have contributed uh, that is reflected in uh, uh, in philosophy. But certainly quantum mechanics is a major domain uh, in, in which the, the, the dialogue is particularly strict for the reasons that Eleanor uh, was doing. Uh, what, I, what I jumped in before is that uh, uh, you want an example of a philosopher who has contributed to science. Eleanor is. It's definitely, she's definitely is. I mean, she, her functional approach to space and time is something that uh, scientists are listening to. So the, the, the dialogue is going on, is strictly. Let me, mention, um, let me mention a couple of philosophers. Uh, my ideas about the direction of time have changed uh, and affected strongly the physics that I do uh, from a book of uh, Hugh Price, who is a philosopher, definitely not a scientist. And uh, my ideas of quantum mechanics have been strongly affected by Janani Ismail, who is a philosopher, not a physicist. And I think we can safely say that Carlo is a scientist who is definitely affecting philosophy. I was going to briefly say that Carlo's interpretation of quantum mechanics is perhaps one of the most deeply philosophical interpretations of quantum mechanics we have. Um, so not to make it too much of a love fest, but I think that's an extraordinary example. I mean, sometimes actually you get this case where the philosophers are more keen to try and do physics because they underestimate how difficult it is. And then, and then you get rich philosophical insight from a really philosophically informed scientist, which is just another argument for not setting up boundaries. It's it's good to be able to appreciate each other's work. I'm going to take one last question from uh, our audience. Dave Boyo-Clear says, I want to ask Alex uh, to say that, let's say that science does eventually kill philosophy. How would it have to go about proving it? I think that physics, chemistry, biology, biologists, chemists and physicists will not be aiming at strangling uh, the life out of philosophy. uh, it will simply be a byproduct of their ability and success in answering the agenda of questions in their disciplines. Um, but as I said, it won't happen in our lifetimes. It won't happen uh, perhaps until much before the heat death of the universe. Um, but the question of how and why philosophers, uh, scientists may go about doing this uh, will turn out to inevitably to be, at least until it's fin- finally answered, a philosophical one, which is sort of the, the paradox that I face as a, an advocate of scientism of the view that eventually all of these philosophical questions uh, will turn out to either be answered by science or to be pseudo-questions. So as we as we draw to a close, actually, I'm going to pose that question to both uh, Eleanor and Carlo. Eleanor, do you feel confident then that science will one day answer all the questions that are worth asking? It might be a very long way away, but one day? No, no, I don't. I don't think it will at all, but not as a failure on science's part. Um, I think that um, I, I suspect that the that the kind of theory of everything in physics may be ultimately beyond our ken, that there will always be puzzles. And, and I don't think that means that physics has failed. Um, I think the domain of science is very big and the world is very complex. Carlo, is science one day at some point in the future going to answer all the questions worth asking? I really hope not. I mean, I want to live in a world full of questions, not in a world with uh, answered questions. That would be a horrendous world. I mean, just boring like everything. I love open questions, and I, I'm confident nature is keeping, giving um, 
ask uh, open questions. On the other hand, uh, definitely it's true that uh, uh, questions get answers. And uh, uh, you were asking for an example. There's one, we have one great one in during almost our lifetime, I would say, which is life. There was a time in which there was a big philosophical discussion, vitalism and whatever, if life in itself is something that somehow has something irreducible to physics in the in the most uh, wide sense, not in a narrow sense, of course. And uh, nowadays, uh, I don't think anybody or just a very, very small minority ask the question, what is life in, 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 in the way it was asked 50 years ago? Uh, we sort of know what it's like. They're full of... This doesn't hasn't closed the questions. We have plenty, plenty, plenty of open questions, including how exactly it has begun and and so many questions about the thermodynamics of life and so on and so forth. But I think now it's acquired in the majority of the intellectual world that there are some biochemical processes as part of the natural process. This is life. So the the, the mystery of life has, I would say, disappeared. And I expect similar mysteries uh, um, that to ex- the extent in which they were seen philosophical and not scientific, uh, in that very specific sense, uh, science has killed philosophy in that sense. But uh, opening new questions and uh, especially uh, always needing the, the kind of work that Alex himself is doing, namely philosopher reflecting about all that. Well, I think uh, as long as we have people like Carlo, Alex and Eleanor to answer those questions, we can afford to live in a world full of questions. It's a rather exciting place to be. Uh, That is all we have time for this evening. Thank you so much to our speakers, Carlo Rivelli, Eleanor Knox and Alex Rosenberg. Thank you for listening. This is my last episode as host and by far my easiest after three and a half years as academic director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, I'm making way for some fresh blood. I'd like to thank Lucio Bryan, Sarah Sawyer, James Garvey and John Haldane from TRIP, as we now call the Royal Institute of Philosophy, to avoid the unfortunate connotations of RIP. Also, thanks to Matt Titterton, who is in charge of recording all the events that are featured in this podcast, and Joel Schupack for his expert editing. Do catch up on previous episodes you missed. You'd have to have an incredibly capacious mind to want to listen to all of them, but a very dull one not to want to listen to any at all. Subscribe so you're ready for the next series later this year, if nothing prevents, or sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at wallinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Thank you 